In Memoriam W. M. Thackeray from Miscellaneous Papers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine G. Charles Dickens, 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 2. In Memoriam. W. M. Thackeray from Miscellaneous Papers. By Charles Dickens. It has been desired by some of the personal friends of the great English writer who established his magazine that its brief record of his having been stricken from among men should be written by the old comrade and brother-in-arms who pens these lines, and of whom he often wrote himself, and always with the warmest generosity. I saw him first nearly twenty-eight years ago, when he proposed to become the illustrator of my earliest book. I saw him last, shortly before Christmas, at the Athenaeum Club, where he told me that he had been in bed three days, that, after these attacks, he was troubled with cold shiverings, which quite took the power of work out of him, and that he had in his mind to try a new remedy which he laughingly described. He was very cheerful and looked very bright. In the night of that day week he died. The long interval between those two periods is marked in my remembrance of him by many occasions when he was supremely humorous, when he was irresistibly extravagant, when he was softened and serious, when he was charming with children. But by none do I recall him more tenderly than by two or three that start out of the crowd, when he unexpectedly presented himself in my room, announcing how that some passage in a certain book had made him cry yesterday, and how that he had come to dinner, because he couldn't help it, and must talk such passage over. No one can ever have seen him more genial, natural, cordial, fresh, and honestly impulsive than I have seen him at those times. No one can be surer than I of the greatness and the goodness of the heart that then disclosed itself. We had our differences of opinion. I thought that he too much feigned a want of earnestness, and that he made a pretense of undervaluing his art, which was not good for the art that he held in trust. But when we fell upon these topics, it was never very gravely, and I have a lively image of him in my mind, twisting both his hands in his hair, and stamping about, laughing, to make an end of the discussion. When we were associated in remembrance of the late Mr. Douglas Gerald, he delivered a public lecture in London, in the course of which he read his very best contribution to Punch, describing the grown-up cares of poor family of young children. No one hearing him could have doubted his natural gentleness, or his thoroughly unaffected manly sympathy with the weak and lowly. He read the paper most pathetically, and with a simplicity of tenderness that certainly moved one of his audience to tears. This was presently after his standing for Oxford, for which place he had dispatched his agent to me, with a droll note, to which he afterwards added a verbal postscript, urging me to come down and make a speech, and tell them who he was, for he doubted whether more than two of the electors had ever heard of him, and he thought there might be as many as six or eight who had heard of me. He introduced the lecture just mentioned, with the reference to his late electioneering failure, which was full of good sense, good spirit, and good humour. 
He had a particular delight in boys, and an excellent way with them. I remember his once asking me with a fantastic gravity, when he had been to Eton, where my eldest son then was, whether I felt as he did in regard of never seeing a boy without wanting instantly to give him a sovereign. I thought of this when I looked down into his grave after he was laid there, for I looked down into it over the shoulder of a boy to whom he had been kind. These are slight remembrances, but it is to little familiar things suggestive of the boy's look, manner, never, never more to be encountered on this earth, that a mind first turns in a bereavement. In greater things that are known of him, in the way of his warm affections, his quiet endurance, his unselfish thoughtfulness for others, and his munificent hand, may not be told. If, in the reckless vivacity of his youth, his satirical pen had ever gone astray or done amiss, he had caused it to prefer its own petition for forgiveness long before. I writ the foolish fancy of his brain, the aimless jest that striking hath caused pain, the idle word that he had wished back again. In no pages should I take it upon myself at this time to discourse of his books, of his refined knowledge of character, of his subtle acquaintance with the weaknesses of human nature, of his delightful playfulness as an essayist, of his quaint and touching ballads, of his mastery over the English language. Least of all, in these pages, enriched by his brilliant qualities from the first of the series, and beforehand accepted by the public through the strength of his great name. But, on the table before me, there lies all that he had written of his latest and last story, that it would be very sad to any one, that it is inexpressibly so to a writer, in its evidence of mature designs never to be accomplished, of intentions begin to be executed, and destined never to be completed, of careful preparation for long roads of thoughts that he was never to traverse, and for shining goals that he was never to reach, will be readily believed. The pain, however, that I have felt in pursuing it, has not been deeper than the conviction that he was in the healthiest figure of his powers when he wrought on his last labour. In respect of earnest feeling, far-seeing purpose, character, and a certain loving picturesqueness blending the whole, I believe it to be much of the best of all his work. That he fully meant it to be so, that he had become strongly attached to it, and that he bestowed great pains upon it, I trace in almost every page. It contains one picture, which must have cost him extreme distress, and which is a masterpiece. There are two children in it, touched with a hand as loving and tender as ever a father caressed his little child with. There is some young love, as pure and innocent and pretty as the truth. And it is very remarkable that, by reason of the singular construction of the story, more than one main incident, usually belonging to the end of such a fiction, is anticipated in the beginning, and thus there is an approach to completeness in the fragment, as to the satisfaction of the reader's mind, concerning the most interesting persons, which could hardly have been better attained if the writer's breaking off had been foreseen. The last line he wrote, and the last proof he corrected, are among these papers through which I have so sorrowfully made my way. The condition of the little pages of manuscript where death stopped his hand, shows that he had carried them about, and often taken them out of his pocket here and there, for patient revision and interlineation, the last words he corrected in print were, and my heart throbbed with an exquisite bliss. 
God grant that on that Christmas Eve, when he laid his head back on his pillow, and threw his arms as he had been wont to do when very weary, some consciousness of duty done and Christian hope throughout life humbly cherished, may have caused his own heart so to throb when he passed away to his Redeemer's rest. He was found peacefully lying as above described, composed, undisturbed, and to all appearance asleep, on the 24th of December, 1863. He was only in his fifty-third year, so young a man, that the mother who blessed him in his first sleep blessed him in his last. Twenty years before, he had written, after being in a white squall, and when its force expended, the harmless storm was ended, and as the sunrise splendid, came blushing over the sea, I thought as day was breaking, my little girls were waking, and smiling and making, a prayer at home for me. Those little girls had grown to be women when the mournful day broke that saw their father lying dead. In those twenty years of companionship with him, they had learned much from him, and one of them has a literary course before her, worthy of her famous name. On the bright wintry day, the last but one of the old year, he was laid in his grave at Kensal Green, there to mingle the dust to which the mortal part of him had returned, which that of a third child lost in her infancy years ago. The heads of a great concourse of his fellow workers in the arts were bowed around his tomb. End of In Memoriam W. M. Thackeray from Miscellaneous Papers Recording by Christine G. in Oslo, Norway, the 18th of January, 2012.